This is a revised version of this podcast. Science communication. Inclusive science communication. You're listening to DNI Sci, the Science for All podcast where we aim to explore how science communicators are making science more reflexive, equitable, and engaging to audiences. I'm your host, Jordan, and today we're discussing inclusive science communication through data visualization. Here's some data. Humans buy 1 million plastic water bottles per minute. Let's take a second and think about that. We know 1 million is a huge number, but how do we interpret how significant 1 million bottles per minute is? Simon Scar and Marco Hernandez, two data visualizers for Reuters News Agency, helped us to visualize the scale of 1 million bottles per minute. In 2019, they designed a graphic called Drowning in Plastic that drops icons of 1 million bottles onto a three-dimensional space and compares the pile to a scale image of a person and a dump truck. Data visualizations such as Scars and Hernandez take numerical information and relate it visually through pictures, maps, and graphs. Viewers can better grasp the information presented because the human mind is much better at comparing concrete images and identifying patterns and outliers than it is at scaling numbers and statistics. Inclusive data visualization goes a step further. It makes sure that each visual representation takes into account how individuals might respond to pictures, maps, and graphs by considering those with disabilities and those whose cultures might affect how they interpret data. There are many resources that teach us how to account for visual differences. Font size, touch, and audio options and design style are options visualizers are considering to aid different communities' comprehension of a visualization. But even accountability efforts can be implicitly biased. One example of this we've discussed is colorblindness. Today, there are hundreds of visualizations out there that account for colorblindness. But when it comes to colorblindness, studies show most people who were colorblind belong to one group, that group being white men. Blind and low vision are more prevalent in populations, yet visualizations are only just beginning to account for these communities. In such communities, even calling data visualization a visualization becomes non-inclusive. According to Josh Miele, a blind accessibility researcher at Amazon who spoke at the visualization conference adapting comics for blind and low vision readers, all visualizations must consider that blind is a diverse community. Those with nystigmus, uncontrolled rapid eye movement, for example, often identify as blind despite being able to interpret structure and color. Nearsightedness, farsightedness, and ocular albinism can affect how we consider visualizing different graphics. For some, adding braille is beneficial. For others, dynamic coloring and audio options might be better. When it comes to culture, reading left and right is just one factor. Color usage alone can invoke certain responses to a visualization depending on an individual's culture and environment. Red might evoke more of a passion or warning response, whereas green might evoke more calm or safety. Different cultures might even view the same color differently. In China, for example, white is worn at funerals and could elicit the same sort of response as the color black in America. With all that data visualization must account for, inclusivity might seem an incredibly daunting task even with current technology. But some scholars, even decades ago, made a mark with examples of inclusive data visualization that still remain valid today. 
one of these scholars might surprise you. Ladies and gentlemen, socialism and the American Negro. W.E.B. Du Bois. Most people who took American history have heard his name. He was a sociologist and prominent civil rights leader during the segregation era. But did you know Du Bois was a revolutionary inclusive science communicator? And so uh, I changed from uh, studying the Negro problem to propaganda. In 1899, while W.E.B. Du Bois was a professor at the historically black Atlanta University, his friend, black journalist and lawyer Thomas Junius Calloway, approached Du Bois with an offer to help him display African-American progress since slavery at the Paris Exposition of 1900. Knowledge wasn't enough, but even if people were ignorant of essential matters which they had to know, they wouldn't correct their actions. Slavery had just ended in 1865 with the ratification of the 13th Amendment. Barely a few decades later, Du Bois was one of the only black men to attend the Ivy League Harvard University. With Calloway's offer, he knew he had the opportunity to make a massive impact and decided to create 60 handmade visualizations to document the ways in which society still held back black America. I interviewed Alan Hillary, a black freelance writer, data literacy advocate, and expert on Du Bois and his visualizations to learn more about Du Bois' role as an inclusive science communicator and why his visualizations are still regarded as such a strong example of inclusive data visualization, even with all the accommodations of today. The theory was that pretty much um, African Americans would have died out due to their in inferiority. inferiority. So, he presented this exhibit to show growth in the community, and he used um, different uh, metrics like home ownership, educational attainment to make his case, and that there had been growth in spite of the different, well, Jim Crow, pretty much, that was there. That would, that would have hindered a lot of that basic things that other people were able to accomplish in, in America. So what he did do was that he allowed the data to speak for itself, and he used the metrics that were common across, you know, all Americans. And he also was able to let um, his message be told with the visualizations, the color that he used, the font sizes. Um, and also he had some photographs and he also had a lot of the law, the law that was, you know, Jim Crow law to show that, okay, here is this achievement in spite of these laws. Instead of him maybe having a more emotional, you know, speech, or presentation, he let he balanced it out with data. Du Bois's visualizations used vibrant colors, word choice, and style that not only captured his audience, but also revolutionized data and statistics in a way comparable to the Scottish engineer William Playfair, who invented the line chart, bar chart, pie chart, and circle graph between 1785 and 1805 but style and other visual accommodations that we discussed earlier, such as braille or audio options, aren't always enough for effective, inclusive data visualization. Du Bois's visualizations were supported by the facts, the data itself, and this allowed his work to be much more effective. So when you want to have an effective argument, you want to make sure that you're using um, credible sources, which he did. He used census data. He used some other demographic data. He actually used the law. He had words there. He had some emotion. He evoked emotion with the colors, 
um, and also with the achievements. And then he also had the data. Du Bois was a powerful communicator, but he did have fa other factors outside of visualization that made his work more significant. Despite being a black man in the early 1900s, Du Bois had strong credibility as a Harvard Ivy League graduate. He also tailored his visualizations to attract the dominant audience at the time. He used French typography and European language mnemonics, despite the statistics he was using being inherently about the black community. This approach isn't always the most effective. And next we're going to discuss why visualizing from the dominant perspective can sometimes present challenges to the data itself, which in all visualizations is the most important factor. Last month, I met with Alice Fung, a data visualization developer at the Irvine Institute for Social and Economic Policy Research, to discuss her work in inclusive data visualization. I told her I had just met with Alan Hillary to discuss W.E.B. Du Bois and how Du Bois tailored his work to fit both the minority and dominant perspective. When I asked her whether or not the dominant perspective can sometimes skew data or the underrepresented experience, she presented a very current example of research conducted at the University of California, Los Angeles, regarding the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, so there was a group at UCLA, I think they are the Center for Health Policy Research. I think um, they were doing a lot of work focused on uh, Pacific Islander uh, communities. Um, and I think especially uh, with regards to COVID-19 pandemic, uh, one of the areas that they've really focused on has been collecting uh, data about the impact of the pandemic on this particular group because you know Pacific Islanders uh, being a smaller racial ethnic group in the U.S. I think unfortunately tend to get overlooked and a lot of times don't get captured very much in the data. Yeah so when we first met you told me about how data had misrepresented these communities and overlooked members outside of what society designated underserved areas. Um, so I think it was a really, really interesting work. But yes, like you said, right, it's, it's very much focused on one particular community. And that's not to say that there aren't other groups uh, within the US whose experiences have also been overlooked, marginalized, um, not captured at all in the data. And so I think there's definitely um, a balance there, I think. They've not only like collected um, and, and um, collected data and, and done some cleaning and transformation to make it more accessible uh, to uh, others who might be interested in this data. I think they've also built some visual products about it as well. Um, and they definitely have, it sounds like, forged really uh, strong connections with that community. I remember them telling us about how uh, they had strong partnerships with uh, local Pacific Islander groups, um, how they went about um, building those relationships with those groups, things like the importance of, um, you know, uh, kind of reaching out to these groups through some sort of mutual connection, having somebody who can kind of uh, introduce you to one another, not, not kind of not cold calling them, the importance of um, kind of meeting these people uh, in their locations, uh, going to them rather than having them come to you. But why go through all of the trouble to build these connections when similarly to Du Bois's time, it's the dominant community that tends to have influence and can impact society to advance these communities. I think it often just really comes down to what is your message or the story you're trying to tell and, and who are you trying to tell it to, right? Um, so if you have, if you know from the outset that you have a very uh, explicit goal of, I'm looking at this one particular group, um, I want to understand them and I want my research 
to be primarily used by this group to, to be found useful by this group, um, then in that sense, I would say that yes, it makes sense then that your your like this data that you're collecting, this dashboard that you're building, uh, will just focus on the Pacific Islander community um, and maybe not capture other racial ethnic groups in the US. Um, but yeah, if you are, um, if you're the uh, focus of your project is very much is on, you know, understanding the impact of COVID on a national scale, um, then it behooves you, yes, to be as inclusive as possible. Today, there are more efforts than ever to bring new voices and perspectives into science communication. We've seen a ton of efforts to raise awareness of diversity and inclusion in post-George Floyd alone. And so the question now becomes, how well are we maintaining diversity and how comfortable are underrepresented individuals in these spaces? There are a number of sources out there that suggest minority communities tend to feel uncomfortable working with science or in scientific spaces, including in the tech world of data visualization. Last episode, we touched on that a bit by talking about science's exclusive history and how in the past, science has been both privatized and used to inhibit various communities. But how much does this hold true in this scientific field now? You know, the inclusivity needs to be kind of baked into the entire research process or the data analysis project process, right? creative or eye-catching um, visualizations out there. Those are the kinds of things that I think the community tends to focus most of its attention um, and discussion and, and kind of excitement on. Um, and so things like inclusivity or things like accessibility as well, I think, which is a very closely related concept, um, have unfortunately kind of been um, maybe not forgotten about, but just something that most people, it has been a lower priority. It can't, if your data is, is biased, if it is missing certain groups, um, if it was, you know, produced under um, kind of um, a really flawed biased methodology, um, if the analysis you did on top of it was itself also biased or flawed, you know, making your data viz inclusive at the end isn't going to fix those sorts of problems, right? Um, it's not going to magically solve like a, a racist analysis or racist data uh, just because you use the right labels in your graph or you use the right colors in your graph, right? So like, if you truly want to, I think, embrace that inclusiveness, um, it has to start at the very beginning and it has to be a value that's uh, upheld throughout your entire project, not just at the end when you're trying to visualize and communicate your results. Um, so that I think also goes back to, you know, making sure that the people who are doing the data collection, who are doing the analysis, um, are also uh, diverse, hopefully, um, at the minimum, at least aware of, you know, what are, what, what, what are their identities and, and what privileges and biases might that um, cause. Um, being also an organization that itself also values, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion is, is really important. I mean, I, I have a hard time imagining an organization that doesn't uphold those values can produce inclusive, effectively, truly and effectively inclusive um, communication products at the end. So I think that's the other thing I would just keep in mind is like, don't just view inclusivity and data biz in isolation from the rest of the process that has to, you know, that has to be, it has to uh, happen for you to even make that data visualization. As we approach the end of this episode, I want to reflect on our conversations with Alan Hillary and Alice Fung. It's important to remember that inclusive data communication involves understanding your audience and recognizing the diversity within individual visual experiences. 
Inclusive science communication involves thinking about these spaces and fostering the sorts of connections with individuals representing these communities. Data visualization is just one example of how scientists can reach audiences by empathizing and with communities and individuals outside of their own, and by creating compelling and dynamic artwork that is both captivating and persuasive. In future episodes, we'll continue to explore other ways scientists can make their work more inclusive and the nuances that may cause these techniques to be more or less relevant in these spaces. Today's episode of DNI Sci has been brought to you by American Scientist and Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. Special thanks to Alan Hillary and Alice Fung for speaking with me today. Today's music choices come from Mr. Simmons' group selection and Free Music Archive. If you want to hear more from Mr. Simmons, please be sure to check out rapguide.com, also mentioned on our previous episode. Also be sure to check out our last episode, Science and Hip Hop, using music to communicate science on americanscientist.org. If you like what you heard today, follow American Scientist or follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore I'm your host, Jordan. Thanks for listening.